2: Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: It's been almost 3,000 years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams. I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
3: Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm
0: Holly Fry. And
3: I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And today we're doing another listener request. Hooray! Uh, and it's a really delightful one, but I'm actually going to save the information about the listener email that requested it for the end of the episode. It'll be our listener mail segment because it adds a nice coda to the, the whole story. Uh, so, Tracy, I'm sure you remember riding a carousel or a merry-go-round as a child. I do. Maybe even as an adult. Uh-huh. Um, it is, or at least was, a pretty common part of childhood, but carousels have kind of become a uh, less and less of an of-the-moment kind of part of childhood, even though there are still a number around and people do still enjoy them, uh, but they are... It's in some ways part of history, and they have their own really interesting history. Uh They're by no means gone, and we're going to talk about some of the modern developments in them at the end. But their prevalence in the entertainment landscape is not what it once was. They used to be much more of like an event item and centerpiece to amusement parks. Uh, and so we're actually going to talk about a few things in this episode. We're going to talk first about general carousel history. And then we're going to talk briefly about a couple of key innovators in carousels. And then at the very end, there's kind of a neat story that we're going to talk about, about one particular carousel that has its own history that's related to the civil rights movement. So it sounds like a lot, but we're doing, you know, they're kind of the brief versions of any of those stories. So. This first chunklet that we're talking about is consistently told anytime you look at a history of carousels. But uh, in terms of hard substantiation, it's difficult to come by. It's almost one of those things that it it could be all completely true, but it could also be one of those things that's been repeated so much that people accept it as history. Uh, But like I said, we don't have like so much hard proof on this one.
0: So, yes. (laughs) And it's so delightful. that It would be such a shame not to talk about it. Uh, so the possible, the, the possibly apocryphal story of carousels actually starts back in the 12th century with a game played by Turkish and Arabian horsemen. And to play this game, the riders would toss a clay ball containing perfume back and forth while they were on horseback. And if a player didn't successfully catch the ball, it would break and it would cover him in the scent of failure.
3: Yeah, he would smell good, presumably. It was a perfume, but everyone would know that he had lost. <laughs> So it's it's kind of an awkward consolation prize to smell lovely but uh that being kind of the identifier that you were not as skilled as your challengers. Italian and Spanish crusaders uh are said to have witnessed this game taking place and that they eventually brought it back to Europe. And there it took on the name uh caracella or gerocello uh depending on which language you're speaking and that translated at that time to little war.
0: Later on, the French adopted this game, and they expanded their play to include multiple equestrian challenges. These developed into competitions called carousels, and participants needed to practice for their matches. So a training mechanism was developed that had wooden horses mounted on arms that were suspended from big poles or chains, and they rotated around a central uh, central point. There wasn't really a floor on these carousels.
3: Yeah, it's really um, you know they're all kind of dangling from above, so not quite the way you would think of a, a carousel or a merry-go-round today. But uh, you know, again, dangling. There are other um, rides that have have become popular that are similar, where you spin outward. But I'm like this is uh, it's, it's
0: the f- like the swings at the carnival where you sit in the yes. swing and it turns and you swing out.
3: Yes, but for a long time, that's how carousels worked. So uh, some versions of these training carousels were pulled by horses or mules. Others were powered by humans. There would often be a hand crank or a pull rope that created the movement. And the horsemen would participate in various games while they were riding these training steeds. And I'm being very generous because apparently they were very rudimentary, quote, horses. <laughs> Uh, And one of the games that they would play included trying to spear a ring with a jousting lance. So if you have ever been on a carousel with a ring for riders to grab as they pass under or by it, uh, this is a callback, allegedly, to this game, although those have become less and less popular. Uh, This is also where that expression grab the brass ring comes from, as the brass ring would be the the most prized of the rings uh, on a carousel game like this. More often you would see iron rings and then there would be an occasional brass ring. So that association of grabbing the brass ring with, you know, going after the big prize or going after something is comes all from this.
0: So watching sports has been a pastime for as long as there have been sports. And so spectators watch the horsemen practice and they're said to have grown interested in trying it out for themselves. So where there's a demand, there are usually people who are ready to fill it for a price. And by the late 1700s, carousels were being made not for sports training, but for entertainment.
3: And for the next hundred years or so, these simple man and mule powered divertisments, because they worked pretty much exactly the same way as the training ones, they were just gussied up in a more fun way, uh, were appearing at European festivals and fairs pretty consistently. Uh, But because they were powered either by man or animal, they had to stay pretty much on the small side.
0: Victorian circus entrepreneur Lord George Sanger described the early hand-crank carousels his father once made in his book, 70 Years a Showman. These rudimentary early merry-go-rounds had horses that weren't realistic, but they were colorful. The horses' manes and tails were made using rabbit fur. And...
3: Because these still required uh, a living creature to power them, uh, kids were generally employed to push carousels like Sangers to get these mechanisms to spin. So these were usually the kids that could not afford to pay for a ride themselves. So they would push for the day, and then at the end of the day, they would be paid with free rides. Uh, There are some sort of dicey tales, mostly apocryphal, but I'm sure some of this happened of sort of near slave labor at some fairs where kids weren't really treated all that well. Uh But for the most part, it seems to have been like a, a pay-for-play situation. <laughs> you come and do this work, and then at the end of the day, you get rewarded with a ride on the carousel. Uh And some mechanisms did not involve children, and they were turned by horses or, more often at fairs, ponies.
0: The Velocipede was an interesting variation on this idea. Bicycles mounted around the outside edge of the carousel would generate the circular motion.
3: Those things look so fun to me. <laughs>
0: Now I'm reminded uh, for a moment of a ride at the Georgia Renaissance Festival where you sit in it and it's mounted from a pole in the center and the people push it to to turn it all the way up the pole and it rises up as the thing that's suspending it gets wrapped around the pole. And then they let go and you spin on the way down.
3: Oh, I don't I'm having trouble recalling that one, but I maybe never paid attention to the rides at the Renaissance Festival. I was probably too busy eating. Uh In 1861, there was a major leap forward when steam entered the picture as a way to power carousels without direct man or animal power. On New Year's Day, Thomas Bradshaw debuted his steam driven carousel in Bolton, England, and it contained a London built boiler unit, an engine and horses that had been made by Bradshaw himself. And he patented his carousel design in 1863.
0: A similar carousel, which may actually have been the same one from the 1861 Bolton debut, was operating at a fair in Halifax in 1863. And while carousel technology was moving forward, it wasn't really met with universal enthusiasm at the outset.
3: Yeah, a journalist who was describing this installation in Halifax (laughs) described the mechanism as mammoth and overpowered. And he wondered how riders were not shot off their mounts like cannonballs. (laughs) Uh local residents also fretted over the possibility that the whole thing would expo- explode from the pressure of uh, the boiler unit. And there were some claims and accusations made that uh, they were endangering children by having this ride available.
0: However, there were not any explosions. And people did continue to be interested in carousels. In the next couple of years, several more of them appeared around Britain, There's even a newspaper report of a a steam-driven velocipede at King's Lynn Mart in 1866, although the records of the mechanism are incomplete. And I'm a little, like, how do you combine the bicycles and the steam?
3: Yeah, I don't know, but it sounded so fascinating to me. Um, And then once carousels crossed the Atlantic to the U.S., they really underwent a huge transformation, and they became bigger and flashier and more colorful, and the horses became far more intricate and detailed, Uh there it was a little bit of a shift to sort of the art of it in many ways.
0: Because the late 1800s saw major advancements in technology and industry, it wasn't long before the carousel saw them, too. The so-called Golden Age of carousels started around 1880, and this was when merry-go-rounds integrated flooring platforms and up-and-down movement of the animals as they circled the central mechanism. Other variations were tried, including coiled springs to add bounce, And even animals mounted on undulating tracks to create an up-and-down movement. The carousel at the Little Rock, Arkansas Zoo, which is called Over the Jumps, still uses an undulating track, and it's been fully refurbished if you ever want to ride one.
3: Yeah, so that one, instead of like the pole sort of moving up and down, it just follows this nice wave pattern track. So you just go up and down. It's a little more of a rolling hill effect. It's quite gentle. And as well as all of the technical advancements, there were some pretty amazing artistic strides going on. So in the U.S., carousels uh, did not restrict themselves to featuring horses alone. So soon, unicorns, lions, gorillas, dolphins, giraffes, and a host of other animals made appearances as mounts on carousels.
0: For five decades, carousels stood as the main attraction at fairs and amusement parks throughout the United States, and people marveled at their beauty and their craftsmanship. Carousel rides were a much-consumed entertainment diversion for adults as well as kids.
3: And several different styles developed in the carousel world uh, in the U.S. Uh, the Coney Island style, as it's sometimes called, is sort of a showier style. The horses are painted in really bright colors, and they often have jewels attached and metallic leaf. And the rest of the unit, like the the central part and the, the ceilings often feature multitudes of light-catching mirrors. And then the Philadelphia style uh, is a little bit more realistic in the way its animals are painted and created and carved, and it's associated usually with really exquisite craftsmanship. The county fair style is populated with much simpler designs. Uh, these merry-go-rounds are usually intended to move from place to place, like county fairs do, so they are by necessity a lot less complex and they don't have as much decoration.
0: And then, just as the culture of carousels had really embedded itself in the Americana landscape, the Great Depression happened. Like a lot of industries, carousel production was hit really hard, and a lot of companies significantly reduced their output or closed up shop altogether. The golden age of carousels had ended, and it's estimated that more than 4,000 carousels were made in the United States during the golden age. Fewer than 150 of these are still intact.
3: Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about some restoration efforts uh, later on. But next, we are going to talk about a couple of important men in carousel history. There are certainly more than two. Uh, but in the interest of time, we had to kind of pick two that are important. Uh, but before we talk about them,
0: let's pause for a quick sponsor break. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks.
4: This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in LA. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For.
0: Uh,
3: one of the big names in carousels is Gustav Denzel, and he was originally from Germany, and he immigrated to the U.S. in the mid-1800s. And as a boy, Denzel had traveled throughout Germany with his family in the summers, helping them run their carousel ride.
0: In the 1860s, Gustav's father shipped the young man, his brothers, and a carousel to America on a steamer. When they got there, they brought Philadelphia, one of the first carousels in the United States, and they set up shop there.
3: Yeah, so that's, uh, you know, happening at the same time that things like the steam power are coming into being. It's a little bit after that. Uh, you know, so while England is having this little boom of, of carousels, it is shipping across the Atlantic at the same time. And there, it was certainly happening in other parts of Europe as well. Uh, the Denzel family built this reputation of incredible craftsmanship, and they set the tone of realism that came to be associated with the Philadelphia style of carousels. And what's really interesting is that their style stayed really consistent throughout the years, even with changes in leadership to the company. Gustav died in 1909, at which point his sons William and Edward took over the family business. In
0: 1920, Edward moved to California to run a West Coast carousel business, and William stayed in Philadelphia. And
3: after almost 20 years helming the Denzel Carousel Company, William died in 1927. And the company folded soon thereafter, uh, and Edward decided to remain in California. He eventually became mayor of Beverly Hills.
0: Eventually, Edward's son, who was also named William, restarted the family business. And his son, William Denzel III, still continues this five-generation tradition of elegance, both crafting new pieces and restoring older carousels.
3: Yeah, uh, one of the things that you'll find if you start looking around online is that a lot of these companies have had sort of a resurgence and often it's, it's family members that have reopened them or have just kind of bolstered them when they were struggling and are now running them again, which is kind of a lovely sort of heartwarming part of it. Um, the other man that we're going to talk about today is Charles I.D. Loof. And like Denzel, Loof was originally from Europe. He was born in Denmark in 1852. And he moved to the U.S. in 1870 at the age of 18. And at first he started as a furniture carver. Uh, his carousel carving actually started as a hobby. It was something he did with his furniture-making skills in his off hours. But it soon sort of started to become a passion, and just five years after arriving in New York, he opened his first Coney Island carousel for business.
0: Uh, Loof saw the potential of an amusement destination, and he was instrumental in developing Coney Island as a permanent attraction.
3: Yeah, he also is often credited with developing Uh, or being a major contributor to the Coney Island style of carousel horses. And five years after he opened his carousel on Coney Island, he opened a carousel factory in Brooklyn. And he stayed in that location from 1880 until sometime in late 1904 or early 1905. And at that point, he moved the business to Riverside, Rhode Island. In 1910, he moved again, but this time much further. He went across the country to California, and there he was instrumental in the development of Venice Beach and the Santa Monica Pierce amusement attractions.
0: Unfortunately, Loof's work building up the role of amusement parks in America turned out to be part of the carousel's downfall. Working with his son Arthur, Charles Loof, uh, and the wholesome entertainment venues he helped build created this perfect platform for the rise in popularity of a different attraction the roller coaster.
3: And as roller coasters became more and more common, they already existed before this, but they really started to get a groundhold in terms of popularity in the amusement industry, in large part due to Loof creating these sort of parks where people would go. Uh, they started drawing more and more crowds and interesting carousels started to wane because this was a much more exciting and thrilling ride. Uh, and to try to regain some market share, the marketing for carousels sort of shifted to be like more about kids and children's entertainment. Whereas, as we mentioned, prior to that, they were touted as diversions for children and adults equally.
0: But between the newer, more thrilling options and the onset of the Great Depression, there just wasn't any way for merry-go-rounds to keep their previous status
3: and when Loof died in 1918, uh, all management of their California pier ventures went to his son. And Arthur eventually sold off the portion of the pier that the family owned, although he continued to operate attractions there for several years. But eventually the Loof's contracts there all expired and their mini empire was dismantled. Uh, the carousel, which had originally been part of Loof's uh, Santa Monica Amusement Center called the Hippodrome, was sold off in parts to collectors. The Hippodrome, incidentally, was actually saved from demolition in the 1970s when Robert Redford and Paul Newman, as well as other local activists, saved it. Uh, and it still stands today. Uh, it's been renovated a few times and it has a different carousel in it.
0: So before we delve into one carousel's significance in civil rights history, let's have a quick word from a sponsor.
3: That sounds super duper.
0: And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out season two of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks.
4: This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For.
2: And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: So there's one particular carousel that's connected to the history of the U.S. Civil Rights Movement.
3: Yeah, it's not like it had a huge, big impact, but it's kind of just a really beautiful story. Um, and it, it's a carousel that still exists today. So as the March on Washington was taking place on August 28th of 1963, a smaller but still important event was taking place 40 miles north of the city. And on that day, a whites only amusement park called Gwyn Oak allowed black children in for the first time.
0: Sharon Langley, who was only 11 months old at the time and was held in place on the saddle by her father, was the first African-American child to ride the carousel at the park, along with white children.
3: And unfortunately, just a few years after the amusement park desegregated, it actually closed for good. And after a few more years, the carousel that had stood at Gwynne Park was purchased by the Smithsonian. That was in 1981. And at that point, it was moved to the National Mall. Seven years after its move to the mall, Stan and Donna Hunter purchased the carousel, uh, and they have since operated it there on the mall. But during all that time, no one knew of this kind of interesting little piece of history attached to it.
0: Amy Nathan, an author researching civil rights history, finally put all the pieces together in 2011 and notified the hunters of their merry go rounds historical significance. It became part of Nathan's book, Round and Round Together, taking a ride into civil rights history. And the Nathans have repainted the horse that Langley rode that day to commemorate the civil rights movement. The National Park Service has also included the carousel in educational programming about civil rights.
3: Yeah, I just love that there's this wonderful piece of like children's history that's also a part of the civil rights movement. There's a really sweet picture of Langley riding it with her dad holding her when she's 11 months old. And then as an adult, once they figured out this little piece of history, she went back and wrote it again. And it's just so heartwarming. Uh, uh, <laughs> so while carousels did not vanish completely with the Great Depression, they'd certainly experienced a drop in terms of their presence and their popularity. And once the economy picked back up, so did production to some degree. But the hand-carved carousel horses that had been sort of this amazing art that was developing were replaced by fiberglass and aluminum versions. Uh, no more steam powered carousels were made, they had shifted over to electric.
0: Yeah, definitely. When I was a kid, the thing that we were riding at the county fair was a fiberglass carousel run on electricity, and I was like, Why are you making me do this? <laughs> so- <laughs> But now as an adult, when I'm somewhere and I see some, like, beautifully restored, handmade wooden carousel, I think it's very lovely. Yeah, There are still some of those hand-carved beauties remaining, and the restoration projects have been undertaken to keep a lot of them around.
3: Yeah, some of them are um, mounted by, you know, just private people that sometimes start collecting carousel horses and then decide they want to put carousels back together. Others are handled by companies, but... In the last four decades, interest in carousels and carousel horses as collector's items has really swelled. Like in the 1970s, sort of this kickoff just happened where people started to become really into them again. And unfortunately, part of the problem with keeping carousels going is that in many cases, it is more profitable to sell off the amazing horses than it is to try to keep a carousel running. Uh, They have to run at a profit.
0: There are also some interesting innovations in modern carousels. Washington's National Zoo now has one that runs on solar power and all of the animals that are represented there are endangered species. So it's in line with the zoo's theme of conservation.
3: Uh, so if you love carousels, this is our PSA, and you want to see them stick around. Again, they have to operate in a way that makes money and makes sense for them to keep going. So go ride one. Seriously, if you have a local carousel, go buy a ticket to ride. Help keep it going. Visit often. Bring your friends. That's what's going to keep this piece of history alive.
0: And so now we're going to tie some things that we've talked about together with the listener mail that Holly referenced at the top of the episode. Uh, she or we both actually got this email last year. So when we tell you that sometimes it takes a while, uh, I would say almost always. It almost always takes a while. <laughs>
3: uh, yeah, I mean, I I, I want to I, I know we always say it, but I do want to reassure people that even if uh, we haven't gotten to your request yet we may or may not but we're trying to so we're working through it and this is one of those things that I love the second we got it and then it just kind of got backburnered by other things for a while so yeah
0: and we also do read every single email that we get although we are not nearly as good about answering
3: No well it's hard to keep up with and as well as you know unfortunately the podcast is not our only job here so there's we're juggling some stuff. So I hope no one feels slighted if they don't get a personal reply. We try to, as many as we can. But anyway, that's the story. So this listener mail is from our listener, Ashley. And she says, Hello, ladies. Uh, I love your podcast, and I laugh at your love affairs with delicious food and historical clothing. Both things I wish I knew more about. I have a happy topic for you since you asked for them so recently. My job. I work for the world's largest manufacturer of wooden carousels, the Carousel Works Incorporated of Mansfield, Ohio. This is site of the historic Ohio State Reformatory, where they filmed the Shawshank Redemption. Our carousels are hand-built, hand-carved, and hand-painted. We are one of the few companies in the world that still does this, and in addition to having a carousel in nearly every state in the Union, we have a carousel in Canada, two in South Korea, and the only two carousels at sea on cruise ships with Royal Caribbean's Oasis of the Seas and Allure of the Seas. We're putting up our 55th new carousel later in 2015, our third in South Korea. Right now, we are restoring the historic Euclid Beach Park Grand Carousel that was once located in Cleveland, Ohio, just one in a long line of restorations we've taken part in. It's also known as PTC number 19. The Philadelphia Toboggan Company was one of the premier carousel makers in the States, and their name is tossed around with historic carvers such as Ilion, Herschel, Spillman, Dentzel, Loof, and Parker. Many of the wood carvers were immigrants who came from Europe and found work in the States. Many of these carousels were richly decorated and painted. However, after the Great Depression, they almost all went away and were replaced with aluminum and fiberglass. It was actually the carousel works that created the first new hand-carved carousel in 1993 to have been built since the 1930s using an antique frame, but all new figures, murals, and gears. I grew up riding that carousel. This is the really cool part about her job. It's all cool, but... She says, I myself am a painter at the Carousel Works, having painted figures and murals for almost three years now. You can actually see my paint jobs on a carousel near you at the Birmingham Sioux. It's kind of near uh, the day trip, maybe. Um, We built that carousel in 2002 and repainted the figures recently in 2013. I painted the clouded leopard and the jaguar. That is the coolest thing, Ashley. (laughs) I actually cyber stalked her work and went looking for pictures of the clouded leopard and the jaguar at the Birmingham Zoo uh, carousel. And they're gorgeous. It's so beautiful. I am so thankful for this listener mail and the inspiration of it, because it's one of those topics that it is really beautiful part of history. And I always like supporting artists and carousels are, in many cases, amazing works of art. So
0: I also kind of want to return to the days where we played a game of riding horses and throwing perfume at each other. I would play that.
3: <laughs> well, we can mount that as our own game. We <laughs> can have some sort of horrible office game where we all smell like perfume. My thing is that, you know, I would want it to be good perfume, but that gets really expensive.
0: <laughs> we can just dilute uh, it in oil. That's what we'll do.
3: There you go. Uh, if you would like to write to us with an awesome idea or to tell us about your awesome, historically significant job, you can do that at History podcast at com. You can also connect with us on Facebook.com slash mist in history, on Twitter @missedinhistory, at Mist in History, at com, and at Pinterest.com slash mist in history. This is another episode where I can't wait to pin things. Uh, we also have a spreadshirt store at mist in history. If you would like to get some shirts or tote bags, or messenger bags, or cases for your phone, or other things that are delightful to you. Uh, if you would like to learn a little bit more related to what we talked about today, you can go to our parent site, com. Go to the search bar, put in roller coasters, and you will get an awesome article about how roller coasters work. Uh, it is like what I consider how stuff works classic. Uh, if you would like to visit us online, you can do so at com, where we have show notes, all of our episodes archived, as well as the occasional blog post. Uh, and we encourage you to visit us there at mistinhistory.com or our parent site, howstuffworks.com.
2: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
1: The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God.
7: for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. That's right. That's right.